Thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope we can continue to serve as an important source of information and entertainment during these unprecedented times. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Bitstamp, before we get started with the episode. They're the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been a cornerstone of the cryptocurrency industry and the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a matching engine from NASDAQ, the global stock exchange, and their APIs are consistently recognized as the best in the industry. Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, features live charting, deep analytical tools, and is available on web and mobile. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro. To learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me on what is a very special episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, and we are joined by Zane Tackett who recently joined crypto derivatives exchange FTX as a sales and business development executive. Zane is among the early players in the crypto scene, an early employee of Bitfinex back when they were a major player in the industry during the OTC ICO boom of 2017. He was at B2C2 the OTC trading desk, which is pretty robust today. But back then when spreads were wide, it was a fun, profitable time to be in that market. Now, just recently, he joined FTX, the crypto derivatives exchange, which has really exploded as of late and really illustrates the massive growth of the burgeoning derivatives market. In this episode of The Scoop, we're going to dive into some of Zane's old war stories from the Bitfinex hack back in 2016, as well as the heady days of the ICO boom when he was at B2C2. So Zane, thank you so much for joining us on The Scoop. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I'm doing quite well over here myself. I hope you're doing well. No, it's our pleasure. We're, we're a little disappointed, a little distraught that uh, Larry Cermak, our director of research, can't attend, but something to keep the listeners tuned in to the end of the conversation. I'm going to do my Larry Cermak impression for us at the end of the show. And, <laughs> but I guess before that, obviously, we'll start with the derivative space. You were mentioning before we turned on the mics that you actually, as one of the first, as an early employee of OKX, which was at the time OKCoin, was a early player in the futures market. And so you've kind of have gotten to see the development of that market and new players come in and new products come in. And this week is an interesting week for the market with a massive expiry on Deribit, which is best known for its options product. We're going to see over 100,000 options expire this Friday, which is an his- a historic number for Deribit and for the options market overall. We've also seen the growth of CMEs options product and its futures product. And obviously, of course, FTX is another big player. So when you take a look at the market as it is right now, what do you think of of the growth? What's driving it? 
you know, I think that in this space, uh, at the end of the day, retail is always the main driver. Um, I think we've seen that time and time again. But people have always said that institutions are kind of waiting on the wings and you know getting ready to come in. And you noted the, uh, the, the growth that we've seen at the CME. And I think that's kind of one of the best uh, indicators to that, to the, the growth that we've seen. But again, at the end of the day, it's all going to be dominated by retail. And that's kind of where we've seen the most focus, I, I think, by players in the crypto space, the Binance, the BitMEX, uh, trying to bring in and address the, the retail uh, user base. And FTX, uh, we're trying to bring, you know, kind of more uh, of trading tools that you get from more professional traders to retail and with things like the Quant Zone. Um, so trying to get kind of a mix of those two. But yeah, the growth that we've seen is absolutely insane. You know, going back to the, the futures markets that were around uh, when I was first getting started in the space in 2014, 2015, and all the problems that came along with it, like, you know, the, the insurance funds uh, and socialized losses, like that used to be a huge issue in the future space. And now that's just basically not a thing. Like I remember OKCoin once had a 36% clawback. And now you pretty much don't really hear those too much these days. Um, so the things have changed a ton over the last five, six years. And, you know, where we are today is just absolutely insane. It's, it's awesome to look back and see how far we've come. One of the dichotomies that has existed between the U.S. market, U.S. and European market and the Asian market is the fact that Asia is very much highly driven by retail and it's interesting, I was mm -hmm. reading the Wall Street Journal the other day, and this isn't just a crypto phenomenon. The average ownership of stocks in Asia among retail groups, which is included in what they call the free float traders, is far higher than what it is in the United States. But retail has been increasing as you see headlines of El Presidente, David Portnoy, and other folks kind of pour into the Robin Hoods of the world. From the perspective of F FTX, how do you cater to both? Like, what is it that the retail folks want that the institutional folks might not want? And how do you create a platform that suits both of those interests? Yeah, so that's always going to be a struggle. You know, how, like, where do you spend the majority of your effort? Because the needs are quite different. And, you know, one thing that uh, you see a lot with retail is, you know, you want good, sexy graphics. So if you look at something like Robinhood, you know, the, the UI and UX of that app is fantastic. It looks good. It's easy to use. And, you know, for somebody who's a retail trader, that's very useful. And then on the side of kind of more sophisticated traders on more institutional, you know, the main thing that you're going to need is stability and, you know, API connectivity. So APIs are something that have when I got started in the space, fixed APIs basically didn't exist and nobody was using them. We've seen the robustness and the stability of the APIs go up, you know, an insane amount over the course of uh, the last few years. But it's basically managing, you know, all the nice uh, usability and functional tools on the website that look good and um, are very useful for people trading on the screens with building out very stable APIs that will allow the kind of the bigger players in the space and get connected. And then the last thing for, uh, for this is, you know, one thing that FTX has kind of put a lot of focus on is coming out with innovative products. So this is something where you can tie in both sides, uh, like the hash rate product futures. You know, I, I think that a lot of people in this space, they've just been enamored with the idea of mining for a long time, but you know, uh, 
it's very hard to get access to the mining industry. Uh, you know, you have to have a lot of upfront capital to get started and access to cheap electricity and all this. So something like a hash rate uh, futures, it's a good way to get retail. You know, they can get access to, uh, you know, kind of the mining side of uh, the Bitcoin industry. But it's also very interesting for industry or uh, more institutional level players because, you know, these people are starting to get involved in mining and are looking for ways to hedge and looking for, you know, some of the um, financial products that you would see in traditional markets coming over and allowing them to uh, make large investments and kind of control their risk. So I would say it's the mix of, you know, good usability, innovative products, and then for um, institutional just stability. On the institutional side, they also probably want exposure to these more complex, esoteric type of products that can either help them hedge their risk or give them exposure in a way that's less complicated than maybe building on top of various vanilla products, vanilla options, for instance. Um, you know, if, if I would have something like a VIX product for crypto, that would maybe be a little more direct than having to sort of build that myself uh, through various option strategies. But the API point is an interesting one. I remember when I would talk to investors back in 2017, they would often complain about how difficult it was to engage with these various platforms and how crypto native exchanges would constantly be adjusting their API sort of willy nilly without oh, you yeah. know, alerting the end user. And there wasn't really any sort of standards for APIs across the industry and everyone was kind of doing their own thing. Has that changed? Absolutely. Um, so one, you know, pushing, breaking changes, things like that. It more comes down to somewhat inexperienced uh, teams and just kind of like I know during my times at OKCoin and Bitfinex, you know, especially during these large periods of growth, there's just so much going on. And it's a team that's probably quite new building a product that's also also quite new. And so you don't really have the cohesiveness across teams and things like that to, uh, you know, make sure that everything as the changes are being made that the users are alerted and things like that. But um, by and large, I'd say that the industry's kind of come out of those growing pains. I'd say that, you know, the teams that are building these are uh, way more professional, have a lot more experience building trading platforms and things like that. And then as to standardization, I would also say that uh, that's definitely been the case. You know, Bitfinex, I love Bitfinex. I've, you know, I, I love the team there. Can't speak highly enough of them. But Raphael, the guy who founded it, you know, he wasn't a big coder. He didn't have a bunch of experience building out APIs for trading platforms. And so a lot of kind of what they did was bespoke. It was, hey, my website needs this. Here's an API that does that. It wasn't matching industry standards or anything like that. But as we've seen the space grow and more and more uh, professional players get involved, I would definitely say that there's been some standardization and kind of uh, it's not as bespoke as, as it once was. Mm -hmm. I mean, even someone like Brian Armstrong, the co-founder of Coinbase, right? He was an engineer at Airbnb. So there are a lot of different examples of that across the space. Earliest days, the folks who were building this infrastructure maybe didn't have that trading technology background like someone like Suzu had when he came into the market around 2017. And then someone like your boss, Sam Bankman-Fried, right, who came from the uh, high-frequency trading world. I believe he came from Susquehanna. Is that correct? Uh, Jane Street? Jane Street, that's right. Yeah, we do have some Susquehanna yeah. people as well, though. 
there is still a degree of like uncertainty, even still, like if we're thinking about the institutional market for a second, they look at something like March, you know, often at the block, we like to focus on the good. There's a lot of interesting things in the market that are attractive to institutional investors. We were the first to break the Paul Tudor Jones news. There's this thesis of Bitcoin as a inflationary hedge. And there are, I mean, the the breakneck growth of the technology, of the trading infrastructure, some of the things that you highlighted, like the development of more robust APIs, all this is happening. But at the same time, you have something like the March event. You had the delisting of of FTX's leverage products from, from Binance, for instance. And so there is a degree of uncertainty around some of these platforms even still, right? How do you address some of those concerns? So uh, one thing that uh, I am trying to find the article right now, and I'm struggling to find it. I'll have to uh, see if I can find it after the chat. But I remember seeing something a few days ago about how in March, when things just went completely nuts uh, and the market tanked, um, the liquidity around crypto actually fared better than uh, a lot of traditional markets, both equities um, and FX. And I saw Max Boonin, who's at B2C2, where I used to work, comment on this. And he was saying, you know, I think it's in part just because of how much retail participation we have and how it's 24-7, 365. And so I think that even during these, you know, times of huge uh, dumps, Bitcoin is showing, or, you know, huge movements rather, Bitcoin is showing how much it's matured. You know, like I remember back in 2015 and back then uh, when we had huge movements, pretty much all the exchanges went down. You know, it was just kind of the cost of doing business. The exchanges went down. There was a lot of downtime. There were a lot of issues. And now you're not seeing that nearly as much. Um, You know, a couple exchanges had a little bit of downtime on that huge March move. But by and large, the market fared quite well. You know, the people kept quoting. There was a good bit of liquidity. And the exchanges on the whole uh, fared quite well, I would say. I found the tweet. Um, Max on June 22nd said that liquidity on major Bitcoin exchanges was more resilient in March than traditional macro asset classes, quoting JP Morgan. And even they were surprised. They they know somewhat surprisingly, liquidity on major Bitcoin exchanges was more resilient than FX, treasuries, gold, and equities. And we saw that on the retail side too. Um, I think Robinhood might have gone down throughout March, April. They went down, I think, a few days ago more so than Coinbase, which went down a few times over the mm-hmm. past couple of months. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I think this is a sign of kind of the growing maturity of the space and also just levels of participation. You know, one thing that Max uh, highlighted there is that you said dozens of dudes making markets from a garage in Shenzhen. Um, we do have people from all over the world, all trading these products. You know, I've, I've worked in China for four or five years, worked at OKCoin, dealt a lot with the the Chinese customer base, dealt a lot with customer base outside of China in the West. And I I was in Japan for a year with B2C2, so got a good look there. And the thing is that, yeah, Bitcoin and crypto in general, you know, it's very popular all over the world, or it's getting very popular with traders all over the world. And so, you know, when you're looking at traders, it's not just you're not limited to a specific region. You have pretty much the entire globe as your uh, potential customer base. And, and I think that definitely helps towards you know, making sure that we uh, 
during big moves that there's still liquidity to trade on and just the amount of participation. And then as to some of the other things that you said, like, well, what do you, or how do you address these concerns? Um, you know, I, I think that in general, the space, there are always going to be concerns from traditional finance just because things aren't nearly as uh, regulated or secure as they are. I mean, last year we had Quadriga. There, there's never ending amount of uh, mess ups in crypto with people um, losing a lot of money. And, and so I think that their caution totally makes sense. But even then, you're starting to see more and more answers to this problem, you're starting to see more and more prime brokers pop up in crypto to try and solve some of these issues around having clearing, custody, execution all in the same place. I think that it's definitely, it's a work in progress. And, you know, as things continue to uh, develop, these uh, concerns will be addressed and kind of slowly start to fade away. You know, one thing that the SEC noted for when they denied the ETF was some concerns around volatility and, um, you know, issues that I think the drop in March kind of uh, showed how resilient crypto really is and, and kind of showed that they're mistaken in that. You know, a lot of uh, traded products, a lot of ETFs fared way worse, traditional ETF and traditional products fared way worse in March than crypto did. So, you know, I, I think the space is maturing and a lot of these concerns are being addressed. And over time, you know, it'll just simply go away and we'll have more and more participation uh, from institutional investors. And yeah, I want to touch on the prime broker stuff because that's another interesting, in addition to the growth, the derivatives market, we're seeing a lot of companies move towards this lofty, ambitious goal of building out a full scale PB. But first, I kind of want to think about the players and how we've seen the rise and fall of different market participants. And you've really been at the forefront of sort of watching all of this transpire. I've been covering the space since 2017. And, and I remember back then when you looked at a firm like Bitfinex and BitMEX today, they still have probably, I wouldn't say unparalleled, but really good liquidity, especially Bitfinex on the spot side, really good liquidity, yep. but the market share has come down quite a bit. And I think it's fair to say that BitMEX is no longer the king of perpetual futures, nor is Bitfinex the king of spot. Um, if you looked at BTC USD pairs, they they controlled almost 50% of the market yeah. just three years ago. So what changed and, and what allowed participants like FTX to really rise to the top? So there's a, a few major things that changed. One, I would say that uh, the space moved away from physical and went more towards derivatives. Um, so Bitfinex's bread and butter was the peer-to-peer -peer margin funding, margin trading, which allowed people to trade with 3x leverage. But you know, as we kind of saw uh, derivatives get launched and more and more people started trading there, because it's so um, so much more capital efficient, not nearly as capital intensive, I think we started to see liquidity uh, pick up a lot quicker on the derivatives platforms. And then that just kind of drew in a lot more traders. The other thing is it allowed for much higher levels of leverage, which uh, retail is usually quite uh, attracted to. Then obviously, uh, the other thing that kind of hurt Bitfinex is something that in the same time also kind of helped Bitfinex uh, or you know the team there, which is the move to Tether and their struggles with fiat. You know, I think that 
in 2017 with the uh, Wells Fargo lawsuit and everything that happened there, a lot of people who were looking at launching exchanges were like, wow, this is just way much more of a headache than I'd like to deal with. But how do we kind of enable our users to have access to a quasi BTC USD trading pair without having USD? And it turns out Tether was the answer to that. Bitfinex was kind of very um, forward looking in Tether. You know, when I was at Bitfinex, we were trying to get a lot of exchanges on Tether and trying to get them to add Tether and pretty much never really went anywhere. Kraken had the, the Tether trading pair, but that was kind of the only thing that we saw um, or the only um, major exchange that had a, a Tether pair. And then in 2017, when things started blowing up, Polo had Tether and then Binance listed Tether and all of a sudden, instead of having fiat and all the, the headaches that came with it, these exchanges were able to just list tether pairs and basically absolve them of all those issues. And so as we saw that, you know, retail people going to Bitfinex to trade just kind of nosedived as uh, people started going to these other platforms to either access higher leverage with futures or, you know, they can move funds easier with Tether and things like that. And so one of the biggest benefits of Bitfinex, the, the fiat side of things was nullified. And so those were the two major things that I would say kind of led to um, Bitfinex losing a lot of market share. Bitfinex lost a lot of market share, but Tether continued to sort of be king of the stable coins, even despite a, let's say, a year-long period of time in which it became sort of a dirty word, Tether, or at least, you know, a company with which you wouldn't necessarily want to be associated. But our impression is that it's kind of emerging from that. It's shaking off the, you know, maybe not so nice reputation with its issues and headaches with regulators here in, well, I'm not in New York, but if I was in New York here in the state of New York, <laughs> um, and, and you had recently, for instance, Coinbase announced that it would support Tether, at least on the custody side. Do you think that it's been able to kind of step away from the, let's say 2018, 2019 issues? Uh, yes and no. Um, by and large, I would say yes with some caveats. But here's the thing. Again, I love the Bitfinex team. I love the Tether team. And, you know, I worked there for two years. I, I was very close with uh, a lot of the people that kind of started that. And so when I was seeing online all these people talk about, oh, you know, these, these crazy conspiracy theories on how they're trying to manipulate the market and all this stuff. Like, I, I just knew it was BS. I knew it right away. Like, I know those people. I know that's not what they're doing. I was at that company. I knew that it was all crap. Like, I just knew right away to write it off. Um, and I think that, unfortunately, uh, Bitfinex and Tether spent too much time getting down into the weeds and arguing with people like Bitfinex online. Bitfinex has no idea what he's talking about. Like a lot of his statements just are illogical. And so I think that if Tether would have just left everything alone instead of kind of keeping it at the forefront, um, I think they would have avoided a lot of that bad press. What they've done since is kind of just kept operating, right? And as long as they keep operating and you have major trading desks that are using it and redeeming it and issuing it, and it keeps going without issues or without hiccups and kind of all you see are accusations of them doing things bad. I think they've moved away from that because you can only cry wolf so many times before people stop listening. And, you know, people have been accusing Tether of all this bad stuff for forever. And, you know, the more and more time goes by, the more and more it comes out that none of that is true. Uh, and even with the NYDFS, uh, you know, they came out and said that Tether had 
the amount of money that they said they had, then Bitfinex lost uh, some money through the crypto capital, and then Tether loaned Bitfinex that money. So like, if Tether didn't have the money, how are they able to loan them that money? And so over time, Tether has kind of come out of this. I would say yes, because they've stopped getting into the weeds and fighting with everybody. It's continued to excel. It's continued to be the base currency for this industry, um, and the team continues to kill it. So yeah, I, I don't see Tether really slowing down in that. The other thing that uh, has really helped Tether's adoption is the way that Bitfinex or the way that Tether will stand up for or stand up to the U.S. government. I think that gets a lot of um, it, it draws in a lot of users who aren't American. You know, like other people might see it as a good thing to be working super closely with regulators and to bend your knee whenever they ask, but to non-Americans, I think they find it very attractive that Tether will stand up to the US government. And so I think that's part of why you've seen this growth. That being said, uh, you've also seen a lot of growth in other stable coins. I think that you know uh, people are interested in some of what we're seeing with stable coins, where interest bearing stable coins and things like that, um, more regulated stable coins. But I don't think they'll ever come close to uh, touching Tether if things stay the way they are. There's some interesting parallels in, in a sense between the reputational issues or issues in the way in which Tether is perceived, Bitfinex is perceived, and FTX Alameda, right? There have been tons of accusations, rumblings about the relationship between Alameda, which is a trading firm in its own right, and FTX, which is an exchange, and they're sort of affiliated with one another. And I'm sure this is something that clients maybe bring up to you um, when they're maybe doing due diligence on either side of the business. Um, what are what are the firewalls that are in place between the two firms that, you know, ensure that, you know, one side isn't looking over the shoulder of the other? Yeah. So one thing that I can say is that, you know, uh, since I've joined FTX about a month ago, I've had almost zero interaction with uh, the Alameda side of things. You know, I, I, I have sent some people to the OTC desk, but the team at FTX, you know, we're focused on FTX and that's where our energy is going. Alameda is a client of FTX. They trade on FTX, but um, we're no longer the longest market maker there. Uh, and, you know, things that we've been going towards, or we've been constantly working towards, you know, reducing the need for Alameda to be there. And one thing that, you know, people that have been in this space for a while uh, will remember is, you know, when BitMEX launched, they launched with their own market maker. And, you know, I know when I was at OKCoin, uh, we had similar agreements in place. And so, like, it, it's something that's been in the space for a while. And then when I've joined the company, there, I've had basically very little interaction with the Alameda side of things. And I have had a couple clients ask that question. And, you know, every time I've discussed it with the team, it's basically, look, Alameda is another client of the firm. It's another client at FTX. And they don't have any special privileges or benefits that any other client would uh, enjoy. And that's kind of um, kind of how I've seen things since joining. Well, these questions of conflicts of interest aren't just limited to FTX and Alameda, right? I mean, as many other firms across the space move into the direction of prime brokerage, prime services, these questions are are raising for them as well, right? So you look at a company like Coinbase, which is moving in the direction of offering prime, similar type of question. 
How can we be sure that the exchange side of the business isn't pushing the agency brokerage side of the business towards sending flow their way? Um, right. And and we have a similar situation with Genesis, which is looking to launch Prime Services. How do we know that their proprietary trading desk won't sort of push the agency desk in any sort of direction? So since we've sort of wound up talking about Prime, I guess it might be worth discussing that market. Maybe we could talk about the potential of conflicts of interest. But I'm curious to know, why do you think we're seeing so many U.S. players move towards the direction of Prime, but BitMEX, Bitfinex, Binance have not done so? Because there's an interesting dichotomy there. In the U.S., everyone's racing towards it. In Asia, not so much. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually a good point. Um, so one reason why I think uh, we see so many people racing towards Prime is that one is that everything just used to be on the exchanges, right? Like the, the exchange did custody. Uh, so if you want to send funds there, or if you want to trade on the exchange, you send funds to the exchange. The, the exchange also did clearing and settlement um, and execution, everything, right? So as we've kind of uh, grown, we've seen more and more uh, custodians pop up. And so as we have more and more custodians popping up, you know, the people who are putting their funds in these custodians are also kind of, it'd be easier for them if they were just able to trade with the funds that they have tied up with that custodian. Um, and then it's also just the safety side. Uh, so one thing is that, you know, as we've kind of matured and uh, become more attractive towards internet, uh, institutional investors, these are some of the tools that they've uh, kind of been demanding or, you know, saying that would help uh, bring more of more institutional players to the space. And then the other thing is that uh, because of the lack of PBs in the space, you know, a, a lot of times like 2017 showed this um, more so than any other point that I can think of is the inefficiencies in getting money between the exchanges can be a huge uh kind of cost for the trading for the trading desks, you know, um, and, and you saw huge gaps in the prices between the ex these exchanges when that happens. So, for example, Bitfinex was trading at like three thousand dollars in 2017. Coinbase was at two thousand or uh, sorry, flip that. Bitfinex was at three thousand. Coinbase was at two thousand and Bitstamp was at twenty five hundred. And you couldn't move fiat between the exchanges fast enough to take advantage of that. Um, when you have a PB type service that allows you to move money, fiat or crypto across these exchanges seamlessly, quickly, um, it basically allows trading desks uh, to capture these arbitrage opportunities. And so it allows for them to be much more effective with their trading. And so you see that with a lot of trading desks that are getting involved or institutional players that are getting involved. They want it because of the security and then also the efficiency of capital. There was one other thing you were talking about, uh, why aren't uh, Eastern exchanges getting into this as much. Um, so you have to remember that BitMEX, they don't have fiat, right? So like if I want to send money to Bitfinex, I need three confirmations. That's 30 minutes. That's not that bad. Um, where, uh, you know, Coinbase, the thing is that I needed to get um, USD in there and you couldn't do that. And so I think the US exchanges, you know, they're, they're still much more tethered to fiat or tied to fiat, I guess is better than saying tether, but uh, <laughs> it's more tied to fiat. And because of that, the the offering that a PB has is much more attractive than a crypto-only exchange like Binance or BitMEX. Well, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting explanation for the 
the differences there. I want to kind of just go back to the derivatives market for a second and look at how they're shaping up differently here in the U.S. than maybe in Asia, for instance. There's definitely more of an appetite for various types of products. Um, We kind of started with perpetual swaps and have moved on to futures and then options. and, And now we're seeing things like swaps, variant swaps. And you mentioned different derivatives tied to hash rate and other elements of mining. Um, what What is the appetite like for these products in Asia versus the U.S.? And do the clients look different maybe? What's your sense of how those two markets look? Uh, so one thing that I would say is that um, the U.S., it's just a lot slower to move on a lot of things. Um, so like Coinbase, you know, they might have uh, ideas for derivative products they'd like to list, but due to regulatory reasons, they can't. And so I think that's why a lot of the innovation that you're seeing is coming from people in the East or companies in the East. Like, you know, something like a, a perpetual swap even is is quite interesting because it's not something that you saw a lot in traditional finance, right? It's kind of like Bitmex came up with that. Um, and I think there might have been a lot of concerns around this if they had a regulatory body closely watching them. But because they didn't, they were able to innovate, come up with an innovative product that, uh, you know, people really liked and has since gained a ton of traction. Similar things with the leverage tokens. You know, uh, Binance listed them shortly after delisting ours. Um, because they saw the appetite there from their users. And things like this probably wouldn't be able to get to market nearly as quickly in the U.S. because of the the regulatory uh, framework there. The lack of sort of regulatory pressure or rather burden or cumbersome nature of the U.S. regulatory framework frees up Asian firms to maybe innovate more quickly if you want to look at it from that perspective. But then there's also a lot of confusion, right? Like maybe we're moving too fast. And this kind of brings back the the leverage token uh, situation back into the conversation where you had, you know, I won't have you go into the drama between the two firms, but there is a lot of confusion about how these products work, right? And so how do we, as market participants, I'm going to include myself because why not? operate in a way that's quick and and getting products to market, but also doing so in a way that we ensure the market understands what these things are and and how they work, especially with something as complex as a leveraged token that is tracking either the inverse performance of an asset or the asset itself. Yeah. So I think dating, I mean, dating back to the beginning of the space, you've kind of gotten into the situation where I guess the the mindset of people is to kind of move fast and break things and deal with it later. So an example of this is with futures. You know, when futures first launched, and I mentioned this earlier, but when futures first launched, uh, socialized losses were a huge problem because you have these highly leveraged products. Uh, the markets were quite a bit less liquid than they are now. So you have these highly, highly leveraged products on somewhat illiquid markets. And then if people lose more than than what is in their account, you can't go after them, right? They're they're not verified. You don't know who they are. So how do you deal with these losses? And then the answer to that was socialized losses. And that obviously had a lot of issues. Like I said, uh, OKCoin had like a 30% clawback. Huobi, I remember, had over a 40% clawback on one of their contracts. And over time, you kind of saw BitMEX. They came out with the insurance fund 
and constantly topping it off with the liquidations. So that was one way that people kind of thought of a way to solve this. Uh, and then over time, you've seen these products grow more and more mature that, you know, they came out with the perps and, okay, how do you tie that to uh, the underlying? And they came out with an innovative way to do that. And the markets kind of reacted and grown with kind of how the, the markets changed. And so I think with these products, at the beginning, there's always going to be some struggle as the market tries to figure out how to kind of how, to, how it works and uh, how to trade it. But I think one of the key things is just on education. So, you know, we wrote quite a bit with our, when we came out with our leverage tokens, we came out with guides. Uh, before you're allowed to trade them, you have to, you know, read this guide and agree that you read it and kind of understand what you're trading. And I think that since they're so young, you know, a lot of people might just be, they see 3x leverage token, they're like, oh, that's really awesome. That just means that it's always going to track 3x, you know, the price. And they dive right into it without reading the details and, you know, they can get burned. That's always kind of going to be a risk, but over time as the market has had more experience with these, I feel like you know, the, the base knowledge of traders is just going to become much better. People are gonna um, find better ways to educate their users. And you know, some of these issues will, will kind of uh, go away similar to how socialized losses have kind of um, been dealt with on, on the future side. Yeah, we're, you know, since this market moves so quickly, in many respects, we are kind of learning as we go and, and, and exactly fixing the market structure as we go, improving it as we go. When we look back, you know, hacks have always been at the center of what we talk about or what maybe the mainstream audience thinks about when they think about this space. How do we get over that hump in your opinion? I mean, you were there for the bit, Bifinex hack, maybe you can walk us through what that was like, how the company sort of addressed it, move forward, and and maybe how the space as a whole can learn from that, glean from that. This is uh, this is an interesting one for me because yeah, I've been through it, but I, I am not sure on the best answer. So let, let me just uh, I'll start with a bit of background on kind of what happened with the hack and how everything, you know, what it was like at the time. So I'll start off with saying it was hell. It was the worst period of my life. Like I, I think the uh, initial 48 hours, I went 40 hours without sleeping, got like two or three hours of sleep and was back at it. And, you know, pretty much everybody on the team was the exact same way. Ironically, Giancarlo, the CFO, um, he was in, uh, he was on vacation when the news broke. And I was in Amsterdam at the time, had met with a huge Chinese client of mine the night before. The Chinese client started hitting me up in the morning asking me how, is, how come his deposit didn't hit. I started asking clients to the, the company, didn't get a response for a few hours, finally hopped on a call and I was like, yeah, we've lost 119,756 Bitcoin. Just fuck. Like, <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, as soon as I heard, you know, 119,756, just instantly, like basically time stopped. All right, you just go into work mode. Like I immediately, all right, time to start getting in front of this, time to prep announcements. All right, time to like reach out to all your large clients and things were just hell. And I remember at one point I asked John Carlo because I was getting so many inquiries from the New York Times, from BBC, from CNN, from The Guardian, et cetera. And, you know, I, I have a lot of experience in the space at this time. I had been in the space for like three or four years, but at the end of the day, I was also 23 years old. And so when, you know, CNN is asking for a quote, and you have a 23-year-old being like, yeah, I'm your dude. They're like, no, not really. And so I asked Giancarlo, <laughs> hey, can I get some help here? 
And he just goes, what the fuck do I pay you for? And I, <laughs> I'll never forget that. I was like, all right, you know, uh, time for me to go out there and continue doing what I do. Because Giancarlo and Phil were dealing with, like, they were act, they were doing the real work of the fallout. I was helping uh, talk to people and helping like people understand what's going on. But Giancarlo and Phil were the ones that were looking at the solutions and figuring out what to actually do. You know, so one of the questions was, do we treat so you were it more as so, a, You were more so tr- taking care of the, the PR response while they were fixing the technical response or working yes, on the technical uh, or the, fi- the finance side of things, um, the financial side. And yes, also actually the tech side because we had to collapse all the positions, settle them, things like that, uh, which was very complicated. But yeah, so... You know, Giancarlo and Phil uh, actually had to do the work and they came up with an idea to settle this uh, by coming up with the, the token, uh, which represents their debt and, you know, listing it and people could sell it. And the reason why this works so well is because if you didn't believe in Bitfinex and you were like, there's no way you'll ever make that money back, you could basically get 36% taken right off the top. And then you're given a token for, you know, if you had $100, 36 were taken, you'd get 36 tokens. And then you could sell them on the open market. And so this allowed the people that were the biggest, most vocal haters of Bitfinex who thought we were going to die right away to basically sell off their debt. Uh, and, you know, most people got 30 cents on the dollar for it right away. Uh, that's kind of where it opened that. So you would get, a, you know, 12, that's what, you, you'd end up with about 20% lost, which isn't, you know, too bad when all things considering. But what it allowed is for everybody who believed in Bitfinex, who thought that we were going to be able to come back and, you know, our biggest supporters to buy up the debt on cheap and make a ton of money off of it as Bitfinex continued to do well. 2017 happened and they, they could pay off people and they could they could buy back the tokens. And uh, then after all of them were buyed back, they actually paid out dividends. And so people that held their uh, Bitfinex debt made money. Um, I'd have to look at the the prices now, but I'm pretty sure that if you held Bitfinex debt after the hack, you made money uh, even against the price of Bitcoin. I think that that kind of showed people that, you know, you can come back from this and, you know, Bitfinex, uh, again, I just can't speak high enough, but I can't believe that they were able to do that, you know, and they finally redeemed all of the tokens. I was stunned. (laughs) Uh, I thought it was an amazing comeback, Um, you know, especially with, Everything that happened with BitGo, I am not a fan of BitGo whatsoever. You know, they basically held all of our users' money hostage and told us that they weren't going to give it back to us until we signed something indemnifying them. Um, And so, you know, we did it with basically none of BitGo's help. And they were able to come back and stay, basically keep their top spot. You know, I think um, right after the hack, we dropped down to like 10% of the BTC USD volume. And by the time I resigned on November 19th, uh, Bitfinex was back at 40% of the BTC USD volume. And I think that kind of goes back to what I was saying about Tether. They just kept doing things well. You know, the, the site operated well, everything operated well, and they just kept chugging along and they moved fast. It reminds me of that Chumbawamba song. <laughs> yeah. I get and, knocked down, but I get up again. Yeah. And, to this point, I'd actually say, you know, uh, Bitfinex, they're, they're almost, you know, they're unkillable. They, they just, everything that's thrown, been thrown in their face, they've took it on the chin and come back stronger. And, you know, like, what was the, 
what was the market cap of Tether when the NYDFS news came out? Like four, mm-hmm. three, three or four billion? Yep. What is it now? Nine billion? Nine billion, <laughs> yep. You know, they've, uh, they just kind of keep their nose to the grindstone and keep working. It, the results kind of tell the tale. I think the slings and arrows of this market manifest in many different ways for many different firms. And you have your peak periods and your more desperate and, and hard periods. And that's not only the case at, at Tether and Bifinex, I think even at your next shop, right? At B2C2, there was similar cycles and the OTC market's very cyclical, but there was a time when B2C2 almost sold itself and, and wasn't doing too hot. And now they're, they're sort of on a tear again. But I remember back in 2017 when you had been there for a bit, right? I think you joined in 2016. Um, joined November 19th, 2016, yeah. So about a year later, November 8th, 2017, I was on the phone with one of the guys there and and I was just sort of carving out my niche at the intersection of market structure and, and digital assets. And um, one of the guys at the firm, Kevin Beardsley, mentioned that, you know, he had just, he had taken calls for $50 million, $20 million Bitcoin trades. And, you know, this was serious volumes at the time back in 2017. And, and it was funny. I wrote the story up and the poor guy, we're friends now. We, we've made up and obviously good friends with Max, but he didn't say off the record. So I ran the story about <laughs> the $50 million calls. But I mean, this was, I mean, and spreads were wide and people were trying to put on these big trades. Um, so we kind of talked about some of the issues at Bitfinex and, and the hardships you experienced. But I, I mean, I can't imagine maybe some of the euphoria that one experiences at a trading shop that's executing trades at such large size. Um, that run-up period from, you know, October 2017 to the year end, that must have been interesting, especially at a shop like B2C2. Yeah, uh, it was very exciting. Um, so one thing that I, I feel like I, I should mention regarding B2C2 and, uh, oh, they entertained a sale. Um, I think that was overblown quite a bit. Like the first time I ever met Max is 2015. He had been my client for a couple of years at this point, And I had met him in Oakland. And even then they were entertaining offers to, to sell the company. I think it was more just like, hey, if we get a good deal, we're happy to right off into the sunset on our money, then, oh no, we're in dire straits. We need to sell, sell the company. So with that being said, uh, the things in, things in 2017, man, they were crazy. Especially like I had gone through my first crypto bull market was 2013. And, you know, it was, it was just nuts, right? Like you go from $60 to 1200 and coming away from that, I was like, well, that'll, that, that just can't happen again. Right. Like <laughs> uh, as these institutional players get involved, like there's no way you could see those types of gains again. And I like, yeah, I mean, when we hit like 4,000, I basically, I was like, all right, well, this is already more than I expected. I don't know. Like <laughs> I'm not going to place any predictions and things just kept running and it was crazy. And, you know, B2C2 was growing a ton at this time. And like when 2017 started, uh, I was the only employee at the firm. It had been Max and Flavio for forever. And I had joined in late 2016. I was the only employee. And, you know, I think in the next 
six months, we probably added 20 or 30 employees or something like that. Um, but uh, I, I remember at one point in 2017 when things were going so crazy, I was in Thailand, logged in, started you know getting some trades going, things like that with clients. And within like 30 or 40 minutes, we had done so much volume that all of our money was already tied up. And so like <laughs> we couldn't really do much more trading for the day. So I was like, came into work, opened up my computer 30 minutes later, closed it, went right off. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> things were just so crazy at that time. Yeah. And the spreads were fat and juicy. Like I said, you know, Bitfinex was a thousand dollars off of Coinbase. Right. And Bitstamp was five hundred dollars off of Coinbase. And so, you know, people were just making a killing. You know, I always like to talk with Dan from Circle about these times because, you know, Circle back then, they were crushing it. They were, they were huge. Oh, yeah. um, and, you know, Ryan uh, was also on the desk back then. Uh, Ryan, who's now joined Alameda, uh, helps out with ROTC. But yeah, things like I, I, I feel like it can't happen again just because of how crazy things were. But you know, crypto has done a great job of proving me wrong time and time again and kind of outperforming my expectations. So I can't wait. I, I feel like things are brewing. I feel like we're not too far off from, you know, the next big bull market. And I'm going in with just no expectations. I, I'm just excited to see what happens. I think this space, if nothing else, is the best entertainment you can get. Yeah, well, there's, there's certainly a fair share of war stories. Um, and it makes being a journalist covering this market all the more interesting, but even in 2020, it's kind of been a bit more muted than we would expect outside of March. You know, things have, there's been more drama and, you know, interesting things going on outside of the crypto world. It's kind of pulled our attention away at the block, um, to a degree. Yeah. Yeah, what's going uh, on across the who, world right now. But who said it? It was I think maybe Vitalik or somebody. They're like, we were waiting for crypto to become Wall Street, but then Wall Street just became crypto. <laughs> and yeah, and to a degree we're seeing that, right? With there's been an ongoing debate about the degree to which retail traders are driving market activity. Um, you could say it's retail traders, you can say it's liquidity, but you know, you see this fervor, the ability to trade fractions of stocks, the fact that trading stocks now are free. It's a, it's a free thing people can do. And add it with the fact that folks are bored as hell and they have nothing else to do aside from, yeah. you know, if they're lucky enough to have their job still and have that disposable income, they can go on Robinhood or, you know, there's dozens of these platforms, you know, that are available for folks to trade. Um, this is something that people are doing instead of going to sporting events or, or parties, they're trading, um, they're getting yeah. into derivatives. And so there is this crypto -y element that's seeping into markets. And there's also of course the volatility, right? The VIX going above 80, yeah. the presence of retail. Um, there's probably other elements there as well, but there is this, um, decidedly crypto feel. Yeah. One thing that I would like to, one thing I feel should be pointed out for uh kind of retail versus institutional flow is like in crypto even when we hear about big institutions getting involved a lot of times that still means retail like i'll give you an example um in japan uh we we've seen basically the biggest players pretty much in the world for fx brokerage get involved with uh gmo and dmm uh yahoo japan and people are like oh this is a great sign of institutional 
fervor, you know, institutional demand. But really what that is, is that's retail demand being expressed through, you know, a large institution. So it's like DMM and GMO, they're trying to offer crypto CFDs to their retail user base, right? So like if there isn't retail trading it at the end of the day, the institutional activity doesn't really mean that much. Or rather, the re retail uh, activity has been a large driver for institutional involvement in the space. And then, yeah, right now you get, you know, so many people kind of stuck at home. And, you know, especially in America, you're getting stimulus checks and things like that. It's leading to uh, a lot more retail driven flow hitting the market. And yeah, you could definitely say that's why it, it's gotten that kind of crypto -y feel. Yeah, it's been it's been fun to watch. And to a degree... Crypto is maybe going in the opposite direction. What's the sort of lay of the land at FTX? Would you say you're seeing an increase in institutional interest as of late or, or retail interest? Uh, I would say that, you know, to date, um, we've still seen more uh, just on FTX itself. I, I would say kind of more institutional or high level rather traders, uh, you know, and I think one way that this is this can be seen uh, is by our liquidations. If you look at the liquidations that you know Binance or Bitmex have on their on their futures and compare it to uh, FTX, you know we're a tiny fraction uh, of the liquidations, even when accounting for volume. And I think that speaks to our user base. Basically, you know it's more sophisticated traders, um, more uh, high level or institutional level players that uh, have come and in, gotten involved with us, but. We're definitely spending a lot of uh, energy on building out tools that um, attract, you know, the more common retail users and, you know, things like the quant zone, I think will be uh, definitely when things start picking up again, will be kind of a, a huge, uh, a huge source of interest for us. Um, basically allows, you know, anybody to go in and create trading strategies, um, basically create algorithmic trading uh, with a few clicks of the buttons with no need to know how to uh, code or anything like that. And I think tools like this will be huge for retail uh, as things continue to develop. It'll basically allow them to be a bit more sophisticated. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a fair point. Well, Zane, Zane Tackett, Sales and Business Development at FTX. We've had a very interesting hour-long plus conversation diving into some old war stories from his days at Bitfinex and B2C2 days of yore the heady days of 2017 <laughs> and of course times. we had some market structure fun as well throughout the conversation uh, oh well I almost forgot I, I made a promise at the beginning of the show to do a a Larry Cermak impression um, and I am a man of my word and so <laughs> to those who have stayed tuned to the end thank you very much for listening to the show and tune in next time <laughs> <laughs> nailed it <laughs> thanks Zane for coming on Great. thanks for having me man really appreciate it I'd like to give our sponsor Bitstamp a big thank you. The original global cryptocurrency exchange. Bitstamp is built for professional traders, yet intuitive enough for any investor. You can use Bitstamp's advanced trading interface, TradeView, to execute your strategy or instantly buy crypto in seconds when the opportunity strikes. 
all from your computer or mobile device. Bitstamp prides itself on delivering unmatched customer service with a human touch. Their global customer care team is available around the clock via telephone, email, and social media. When you contact them, you'll always speak to an actual person, not a bot. You can download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and to start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro.